0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
2: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. I'm recording this segment right now in New York. What you are about to hear is a conversation I had with BuzzFeed CEO, Jonah Peretti. We had that at the annual Digital Content Next Summit in Miami. It's quite pleasant. Uh, Digital Content Next is a trade association that serves the needs of more than 60 premium digital content companies, including Vox Media. Thanks to them for hosting this event. Thanks to them for letting us record this. This is normally sort of an off-the-record conversation, and those folks agreed to let us put this one on tape so we can bring it to you. This is a pretty interesting, wide-ranging conversation. It's always interesting to hear from Jim Peretti. Uh, The last time I talked to him on stage, I think, was a couple years ago, so this is a good time to update the state of the state, digital media and BuzzFeed specifically, so let's get to it now.
1: Thank you.
2: Welcome. We don't have a lot of time, so we'll, we'll talk quickly. Uh, the last time I talked to you on stage was probably close to two years ago. And at the time, you, were, you had an idea that, that Facebook ought to pay you and other big publishers for your content. Um, and it seemed like the kind of thing that you would say on stage and no one was ever going to take seriously. And then over the last year, that became true they are now paying you at least in some way for, for news, for their news tab. Am I summing that up correctly? How did that come about? Did, did you convince them to do that? I think Robert Thompson's in the room. Did, did he convince them to do that? How, how did you get Facebook, which didn't want to pay for, for we news? Can, we can give Robert it?
1: Thompson all the credit Yeah. Okay. Um, for, that, for that. I don't know if he's in the room or not. But um, uh, I, I think um, when I was first raising money for BuzzFeed, I would talk to investors and they would say, you're gonna have to pay the platforms to get distribution. I said, no, it's gonna go the other way. They're gonna pay us because, you know, we're making great content for their platforms. And generally people thought that was, you know, never gonna happen. I look now across um, BuzzFeed and we have around 100 million in revenue that's coming from um, Facebook, Google, Amazon, and uh, Netflix and that was you know nothing almost nothing a few years ago so it has been increasing in the form of rev share it's been increasing in the form of I mean what I like about the Facebook news announcement is that it's not it's not tied to a rev share or a CPM um, and for news content um, if it's just if news is just part of a general marketplace it Real reporting and journalism is always going to cost more to produce, and so if it's just in an open marketplace, you're never going to really be able to support news. It's always going to favor aggregation or entertainment content. So just paying a licensing fee for the news, I think, was a, a good step. I like the fact that it's it's not the normal Silicon Valley. Let's just do a rev share on everything, um, which often ha- uh, results in a race to the bottom. So
2: I understand why Netflix would pay you a license fee to make a show, and we can talk we about. We don't it.
1: actually have much re- Netflix okay. revenue, but yeah, yeah, in
2: theory, yeah, uh, and. We can talk about the Amazon stuff in a minute, but but Facebook for a long time wanted no part of this, uh, and Google still really doesn't. How did that shift, and, and how much were you responsible for that?
1: Um, I mean, I I think you have to ask, you know, Mark Zuckerberg or uh, you know some of the Facebook executives who discussed that. But since what, you're who, here, who, who, was, who was responsible for it, or what, what influenced their their thinking? I know a lot of people ha- over the years have talked with, you know, Facebook people from Mark all the way you know, up and down the organization. I you know, have brought in printouts to Facebook showing um, the, um, the cost of, of, of producing news just on a, on a um, RPM basis, like how much does it cost to generate an impression of a quali- of qual- quality journalism and how much Facebook was paying in, in a rev share. And there were, you know, it was something that resulted in a loss every time we do more journalism. And so I think they understand that 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 was not sustainable. Yeah, I
2: remember asking about this around the same time, maybe a couple months after you talked about it on stage uh, at an event, and I asked him, are you going to pay? You were asking for it, Murdoch was asking for it, and he just blinked at me like it was a foreign concept. So so something shifted. Um, I guess maybe we'll get him on stage next year and ask him. Um, Do you think that is a permanent state of affairs where Facebook is going to pay you for this content, or is this sort of a one-off or a trial?
1: I mean, I think that there's a model where every major platform pays a little bit for news, and then um, between five or six or eight different platforms that can be sustainable for free, freely distributed public uh, news. Um, I know a lot of, a lot of people here um, run subscription businesses where they're maybe not syndicating their news to other places, but there always has been sources of quality journalism that are freely available to the public, and I think there needs to continue to be sources of quality journalism that are freely available to the public. Um, And one way that could work is strong owned and operated plus syndicating to five or six or eight different places and getting paid for each of them. And then the platforms don't need to be in the news business because they really, they're not comfortable being in the news business. Um, so, you know, so the way, that, say, Spotify bought podcasts and owns the content, I don't think Facebook wants to buy news companies or Google wants to buy news companies. So they don't need to be in the news business, but they get the benefit of sharing some of the cost of the production of that content. And news is a great way to drive repeat visitors and to build trust in the platform and to you know, avoid some of the, the problems of misinformation, because if you don't put news on the platform, bad actors will put you know, counterfeit news in, in, in its place.
2: I, I still wonder if, if the platforms are even comfortable even let alone paying, um, but even, even saying this is news, right? as soon as the, the Facebook news announcement went out, they immediately were getting grief because they were including Breitbart in their, in their tab, they weren't paying Breitbart but just announcing it, they were putting Breitbart in this group gave them a lot of grief. And it's the kind of thing that traditionally Silicon Valley folks have said, we don't want to have any part in in choosing what the audience sees. The audience will choose that, aided by computers. Um, So I guess I'll just ask one more time. Do you think there's a fundamental shift where they're comfortable saying, this is high-quality news, whether or not we're paying for it or someone else is, versus we can't determine whether this is accurate or high-quality, and your version of high-quality is different than someone else's, and we're just going to throw our hands up?
1: I mean, I think it's hard for them to get super opinionated about what they think is counts as a legit news source and what doesn't count as a, a news source. And if you think about where they're starting, you know, a lot of us are starting from a very different place. We're starting from a, a place where we make all of our own content. We employ the journalists who are making the content, and, and that's where we're starting from. They're starting from a site, you know, Facebook, where you would figure out where the party was um, with your friends, or, or you'd... Um, you know, post funny personal content or memes or things like that. So they're starting from a totally um, marketplace-based idea of content. And so it takes a while to move from there to, to a place where you're, sent, you're thinking of the, the pain seem that pain. doesn't that hard, work.
2: though, right? We all sort of we, like, we get what a newspaper is. We get what news is. We get, we get the difference between that. It seems like these are very bright people. It shouldn't be that difficult for them to, to come to grips with this.
1: I mean it's it's difficult to switch from a marketplace business model to a to a you know syndicating professional content uh, model just because we we make a lot of content, but I mean it doesn't compare at all to this scale of content that is being just pumped into these systems by by users and this crazy long tail of influencers I mean so much of the, so much of the content that you know uh, Facebook and and YouTube have more content from influencers than they do from all the publishers in the world combined. Right. So, so you know, if, if the majority of what the audience is experiencing on these platforms is, is content from, from influencers and users and things like that, um, I think that has shaped the view of people you know, who are leading the big tech companies and they look at it, at the publisher complaints and say, you're like a third of the total views on our platform combined as an industry. Like you think that it's so important, but really it's about messaging or really it's about influencers. So so I think we need to keep pushing them, but I think um, knowing where to push and how to push, it helps to understand them and how they think and how their marketplaces work. And if you understand um, from their perspective what they're trying to do, um, it can help figure out ways to, to suggest and incept and push for ideas that will help the publishing industry and the, and, and, and the news industry.
2: A different Facebook question. Um, you're diversifying your revenue and we're going to talk about that. By the way, I don't know if it's Jason or whoever's backstage. I can't, if there's a clock, I can't see it, so I don't know where I'm supposed to look. Um,
1: <laughs> we're um, going to go for two, three we're hours. We're going to go for hours.
2: Yeah. Um, a few years ago, you, basically all your revenue came from native ads. That was your whole pitch. Um, There weren't ads on Buzzfeed. The whole idea is you were going to make ads, and they were going to travel around the internet. And really, it was a very Facebook-centric strategy, right? You were going to distribute this stuff for advertisers on Facebook. Now you've moved away from that, in part because you wanted to diversify, but in part because you had to. What what happened to the native ad strategy that, that made you need to switch?
1: Yeah, so we we were pretty early on with this native ad model when really it was inspired by Google where you know, if you do a Google search, you have the sponsored results and you have the organic results and, and Google got better at search and then they got better, they made more money and they made a better product for, for people searching on Google. So why don't you do that for media? Let's, let's make great content that people love to share and then let's make a branded version of that. Part of the reason it worked so well early on and allowed us to scale so quickly was because you couldn't really advertise on Facebook in the time. Facebook didn't really focus on their advertising, their ad tech. I mean, you remember the days when people would talk about how Facebook is great, but can it make any money? How uh, you and, can make money from growing sheep? Um, I guess they they can make money. Um, <laughs> so. You know, But during that period, a lot of brands and advertisers, they wanted to reach the audience on Facebook, and they didn't have a way to do it. So it would come to BuzzFeed, BuzzFeed would make native advertising. It would spread across that Facebook um, audience. And so we were one of the, few, you know, looking back on it, we were one of the ways that you could advertise on social before social had figured out their ad models. Um, we kind of figured out the ad model for... For or at least one ad model for social before the platforms figured it out for themselves, um, and so that allowed us to scale really quickly when the platforms started to get more mature. they built their own ad platforms, their own uh, you know ad tech they kind of locked down on the distribution of of native and then it has flipped to a model where in some cases they're sharing revenue with us you know they're they're taking the direct ad dollars and they're kicking some back to us because they still need our content um, and and I think that's the other just big thing that I think they're starting to realize in Silicon Valley, which is that if you're YouTube or you're Facebook, the main way that people interact with your product and know your product is through content being produced by other third by third parties, and that's a little bit scary to say you're this hundreds hundreds of billions of dollars market cap company, and and the way that consumers interface with you is by content you don't control or really understand being made by other people, and that's a little bit scary. And so I think to your earlier question about you know, what has shifted Mark Zuckerberg's view or the shifted and caused some Silicon Valley companies to pay for content. I think they're realizing, oh wow, if we don't, if we're not paying for it, if they're all figuring out how to monetize on their own and it's the main way that consumers interact with our product, we're in a precarious position.
2: Hey, this is Peter breaking in so we can bring you a brief word from one of our sponsors.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N 29.com.
2: And now we're back with Jonah Peretti. So this idea that this platform idea, right? Which is sort of the dominant economic model, right? Or everyone wants to fund one, everyone wants to run a platform um, because all the inputs you're not paying for generally. Um, do you think we're going to sort of we're having a sort of reset or reevaluation of that that you know there's fundamentally maybe this stuff doesn't work at scale or it's not sustainable. Um, and we can point to any different platform that's got any kind of problem with stuff they can't control coming in. Do you think that changes? I mean, it's separate from what we're talking about in terms of revenue, but it's a it's a broader question
1: i mean it it feels to me like marketplace companies have gotten bigger and bigger and they're continuing to grow much faster than the rest of the economy and they have lots of problems, and so that's caused a lot of anxiety, which is why we talk about it, but I I think people like to use Uber, they like to use Airbnb, they like to buy stuff on Amazon, and so much of Amazon's inventory is now marketplace-driven, and so we're moving into a environment where every major industry is being defined by these marketplace companies and online services companies, and even if you're, if you're Amazon, you know, you're a pioneer in it, but then you know, Walmart is now becoming an online you know, business, and, and so everything is moving more towards marketplaces, not less towards marketplaces. The question is, are those marketplaces becoming more managed? Um, and a lot of work that Buzzfeed is doing is curating those marketplaces. So looking through everything on Amazon and finding interesting shopping content, or looking through all the different places you could travel on, um, you know, a, 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 you know, places you could stay in a hotel or travel, and like, where are the ones that are actually worth your time? And so. How do we create a trusted layer on top of these giant marketplaces that help people figure out out of this infinite choice what is worth doing, what is worth trying? Because I don't think marketplace model is going away. In fact, everything's going to So they're and to you're gonna, your,
2: your pitch is we're going to be the layer on top of that, and that's that was in this memo that you put out at the beginning of the year. So you provided a nice segue for me, um, <laughs> where you talk about that. You've been talking about this for a while that you're shifting from basically all native ads to a wider mix of revenue. I think you had nine boxes a couple of years ago, and now I don't know if there's five or six different slices of the pie chart. Commerce has been a, a very fast growing business for you. In my mind, that is affiliate links and then licensing deals with people like Walmart. I mean, am I summing that up correctly?
1: Uh, yeah, it, it really started in the retail industry um, where we are curating products and helping people find stuff that they might want to buy. And we have seen this compression of the marketing funnel where people are going from inspiration to transaction much more quickly. Um, I think because they're doing everything on their phones. You know, The old sort of model is you'd read a magazine that would talk about a cool vacation destination. Then you'd go and do a Google search later on a desktop computer. The, the top search result would probably be a, an, a, an OTA like Expedia or Booking. Then you click to and get the hotel and the airline. And it was a multi-step kind of process. Um, and in that process, Google would take the majority of the profits and it feels like the most important parties in the chain are the, are the publisher that makes someone want to travel and go on a trip and inspires them, and the hotel and airline which delivers on it, but all the, the profits are skimmed out in the middle from the OTAs and, and, and Google, especially. And I think that's one of the underappreciated things in the in the industry right now. Like, people talk about you know, Facebook and, and Google in very direct ways that they're maybe hurting publishers or, or taking revenue from publishers. But the biggest thing is this indirect thing, which is, we all create content, we inspire people to try something new, buy something new, join a new uh, community, go on a vacation, they get that moment of inspiration, and then they leave to go do a Google search, and the Google search, you know, converts, and then Google says, look at this, we, we, right. we got credit for $4, 000, a $4,000 vacation because we were the last click. Um, and I think that is a problem that is starting to be solved with some of the commerce and affiliate models that, that that's, we're seeing that's emerge. That
2: attribution problem is an old problem. People have been trying to solve it for a long time. Um, and the affiliate link idea is a, is a pretty clear way that you can skip a bunch of steps, right, and get paid or at least rewarded in some way. Um, and then some of the downsides, right, are, are there's an editorial question Um, Why are you recommending this to someone? Um, You need to disclose that, but also sort of what kind of content are you producing? Are you producing content because you want to generate those affiliate links? Um, And then I think the other big issue for anyone here in this room to think about is, is this an Amazon Google business? And if so, are you looking at another version of a duopoly? Or is there some way where that's gonna offer a publisher more options than one or maybe two dominant sort of vendors?
1: Yeah, so the editorial credibility piece is really important. And I think one of the things that has helped is that shift to marketplaces means there's lots of marketplaces with infinite choice and curating that choice is what um, is providing value. Um, And when you tell people to buy one product and not another product, you get paid either way. And so the incentives of the people who are writing the content is really to connect people with the best products so that they are satisfied. Yeah, but
2: Amazon can also call you up and say, we'd really like to push this. Or we're going to give you a we're going to give you a higher bounty if you sell that, and there's a natural shift. And even if you guys don't do it, maybe there's another publisher who will. And maybe the consumer has no idea this is going on. But it seems like inevitably you're going to end up with, with with problems.
1: Yeah, there's abso- You absolutely have to operate with high ethical standards and high um, levels of integrity. It's true in news that if you write about. Certain topics, you might get a higher CPM, and you know that doesn't affect most journalists who are. Or you get
2: more page views, right? Maybe at a lower CPM. I mean, everyone deals right. with. There's all, there's of all this. kinds
1: of economic um, incentives that can corrupt the editorial, which is partly why you know companies that take content seriously are important, and to companies that care about building long-term trust, are important, and 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 so, and so um, I think there's ways of doing it that really just help publishers get credit for the fact that, that we're the ones who are inspiring new behaviors and new activity, and we often aren't getting paid for that. And it is a long, this attribution problem is a long, um, something people have thought about for a long time, but it doesn't get as much attention, I think. And sometimes when we're talking about the challenges that Google you know, is, is creating for the publishing industry, we do it in a way that implicitly suggests that they're strong and that their ads work really well. Like that Google ads are, the problem is we can't compete as publishers because Facebook and Google ads are so amazing. And um, in some ways that can cut against our own interests to make an argument that like, yeah, they should throw some money to us but because we can't compete because their ads advertising is awesome and, and we just can't compete with all that targeting and data they have. What if the truth is actually that a huge percentage of Google advertising is taking credit for transactions that would have happened anyway? That you're going to go stay at this same hotel, you stay with your family every single year, and you do a Google search, click the sponsored link, and Google is taking a cut of that, and you would stay there no matter what. Like, Google had nothing but maybe a slight convenience of driving there that they should have provided with their editorial links. So maybe the answer, you know, maybe the answer of what's the problem with Google isn't that their stuff works too too good. It maybe the problem is their stuff in many cases doesn't actually work and they've just figured out clever ways of taking credit for any time there is ad effectiveness. Um, I like
2: that you're smiling as you make this pitch.
1: <laughs> um,
2: uh, last year I wrote about uh, talks that Amazon was having with you and some other publishers about specifically encouraging you to move into markets where they would like to generate more more business. Did they, did they and they would basically be underwriting a geographic expansion, did that ever happen?
1: Um, we have expanded our commerce business into, into other markets and um, it's not something that is exclusive with Amazon, but
2: but it's something that they came to you and said, we'd like you to do that, and there's an economic incentive for you if you do.
1: Um, I think that um, Amazon definitely was interested in expanding and of course, building a business in other markets is something that you know would provide uh, economic benefits to BuzzFeed. I mean, when we drive transactions and we get paid on those transactions.
2: Okay, um, a couple more questions before we open up to the audience here. MA, and um, I think the fall of 2018, you did a New York Times interview and you said, I think all the publishers should essentially consolidate and merge, and then that's how we'll compete better with Google and Facebook. Um, I think there'll be a big wave of this stuff. And there was a lot of speculation about who was going to buy who. And a lot of the big publishers did end up buying someone. Vice and Vox and Group 9 all bought somebody else. You guys didn't buy anyone during that phase. Why didn't that consolidation happen or why hasn't it happened yet?
1: I was waiting for this conference where all of us are going to merge yeah. into one, one giant company. Um, so, Just out in the hallway there is a team of bankers um, and, and we're just going to all go out and we'll hash it out and by the end of the day um, we should uh, have, uh, I don't know, that would be a real tough integration though, never mind, that's, that's probably, not, probably not a good idea. Um,
2: you talked to, you. definitely were in some of those talks. What, why didn't you guys make one of those deals?
1: Uh, I mean, we were never in a position where we felt like we had to make a deal. Some of what I was saying in that interview was that smaller players in the digital space um, would probably really need to do uh, a deal, in part because I looked at the space and it felt like it was um, bifurcating to influencer-type content creators who can build... You know, pretty decent businesses, you know, several hundred thousand to several million dollars a year with like one person um, or a small team. Uh, and they had a lot of advantages that big media companies don't have. Lower cost structure, less uh, 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 rules and constraints and the kind of content they can make in some, in some cases. Um, and um, they were, they're providing a lot of the content to the big platforms. And so they are a huge force. And, and so I was looking at those kinds of companies. And then I was looking at companies like, like BuzzFeed, which is a, a, you know, you know, several hundred million in revenue and, and the ability to build out all these diversified revenue sources and generate more revenue for the content we're creating because we have all these teams and infrastructures and support. And it just felt like there were a lot of companies that were in the middle where they didn't have the leanness of the influencers to be able to operate um, uh, you know, more efficiently, but they also didn't have the ability to bring in enough of the talent and business and things like that. And so it felt like those, those companies were in a position where they needed to, needed to, to merge. And, and-, and what
2: about the, the bigger companies? My employer, a Vice, I mean, Vice bought Refinery Maybe somewhere in the middle of uh, the discussion we're having, but do you see that the bigger your your company, the bigger companies merging as well
1: um I don't think that there is as pressing a need like i, I think for the the those mid-sized companies, yeah. it makes a lot of sense to join a bigger company um, for the bigger the bigger digital you know digitally native companies, um, I think Vox is at scale and can operate you know effectively BuzzFeeds at at scale there's a few you know. A um, uh, uh, bigger companies that, that, are, that, that can do that. Um, it could make sense for some of them to mer- you know, could be, it could be makes, they could, they could, you could see bigger combinations that could make sense, but I don't think there's, um, there's an urgency for it.
2: Last question, you, you said uh, in this memo that you wanted to buy a company called Meetup. This is one of the many companies that we work bought and is now furiously trying to sell off. Um, and this is part of a strategy you had for paid social. Why did you want to buy Meetup and and what does paid social look like for BuzzFeed?
1: I mean, I had a vision for for how Meetup could be part of BuzzFeed that that I was really excited about, which was essentially, we've been seeing more and more that our content is inspiring action in the world. And whether it's transactions in our commerce business or, or, or just people going on trips or trying things, joining communities, finding and discovering new fandoms, we see content really driving action. And I thought that Meetup could be another way to have something downstream from that where when people get excited and engaged with our content, they could then connect and meet with people in the real world, um, and that we could integrate in an interesting way that would um, drive a lot of of value. Um, This concept of paid social is that in some ways it's counter to the current trend, which is all the social platforms are free and available to everyone, and then all the content companies are, are focused on paid and subscription models. Um, And what if you reverse that and you had a layer of content that was free across all platforms on the internet, which is BuzzFeed's approach, curating all the best of the internet. And then you combine that with paid social, where you don't have two billion people on the platform, you have a couple hundred thousand here, or a million there, Um, and,
2: and the consumer is paying. I want to pay to be with like-minded people, people who share an interest that I have. Yeah.
1: So with Meetup, Meetup organizers pay you know pay a fee to to be you know, a subscription to be able to bring people together. And I think you're going to start to see more niche social things where people aren't just paying for content; they're paying to be in an, in a social environment with like-minded people, without the harassment, without all their data being sucked for advertising, without um, some of the some of the negative things. Um, so niche communities and paid communities is an area that we're exploring and starting to think about, and Meetup could have accelerated it, but I think there's other ways to to build um, interesting alternatives to the social networks that are smaller and more niche that could um, also provide new lines of revenue.
2: Thanks again to Jonah Peretti for sitting down with me. Thanks again to the folks at Digital Content Next for hosting us. This is Recode Media. I will see you next week.